0: on the hereditary enemy tonight in the second um, annual observance of International Ten Peace Day uh, in uh, Venice, in, at a ten conference in Venice in 1983. Uh, we were going through the usual agenda <coughs> of business when a rather shy Yugoslav uh, from Slovenia stood up and said, I think we should have a committee on peace. Now, there have before this been just two standing committees in Penn since its founding in 1921. One is Writers in Prison, which is sort of the um, opposite number of our Freedom's Right Committee here, and the other is on translation. So um, this is a very quiet suggestion at the end of the business of the uh, Assembly of Delegates in Venice um, sort of reverberated in the air. And by the time we all met in Tokyo in June of 1984, especially because we were in Tokyo and because the theme was Nuclear Aid, Why Do We write? It seemed to be um, not only appropriate but urgent that indeed we internationally can do, um, begin a standing committee to address the problems of peace, how we can possibly do what we can do as writers to help persuade the world that we must have peace. And at the same time, at that same meeting, we decided that we would begin at least by having an international peace day, which would be observed ideally by all centers around the world. Um, It is now 8 o'clock in New York. Uh, The vast majority of centers have already celebrated Peace Day. I wish I could tell you what they've done. I don't know yet. Um, but I am sure given what happened last year, which was that at least eight or 10 (laughs) centers did participate, that we'll have the same number and I hope more again this year. The reason the theme of Hereditary Enemy was chosen was that it was felt um, by all of us that one of the real problems of peace were the natural or, or condition hatreds that we all have in us for other peoples. In some cases it's mostly national borders as you have in in Europe, all of Europe. Um, It can be national hatreds, racial hatreds, social hatreds, but the idea was that as writers uh, we are, if nothing else, meant to look at society and especially ourselves with a kind of almost brutal candor that this is a subject that we should be prepared to address and be able to articulate, because articulation is also what we're supposed to have at our disposal. So with that brief introduction, I'd like to introduce Dori Ashton, who's going to moderate the evening. As you know, Dori Ashton is an art critic and historian, and she is also a long, long, long time active member of our Freedom to Write committee. So from that point of view, we couldn't have a more appropriate chairwoman. Thank you.
1: Thanks. I want to just add to that that uh, we just discussed this. There is, in New York City, Penn, there is no peace committee, and I'm hoping that this evening will initiate a peace committee. The issue, as it was published, had, of course, to do with with local conditions and the peculiar kinds of intolerance that every local condition inspires. But probably... uh, I would guess that everyone on this panel understands that uh, what what is uh, local really is not local. It always uh, spreads beyond and gives the permissions. And so uh, this evening is really dedicated to issues that are perhaps broader than uh, the the title uh, suggested. And I think that's pretty much uh, what the Yugoslavs who suggested it had in mind. I'm the daughter of a physician who always uh, worked in in, uh, under adverse circumstances and who used to say to me when I was little every child, every bigot was once a child and uh, I think we should always remember that. Um, I'm going to uh, be the uh, moderator and uh, the ground rules so to speak will be that each speaker this evening has 10 minutes in the initial presentation and then we'll devote uh, 20 minutes to a half hour for uh, conversation among the speakers, and then uh, I will open it uh, to the floor and we will have a conversation amongst us and you, and I will uh, receive the questions for the speakers. I will introduce everyone first and then we can go on from there. Uh, To my left is Kimiko Han, uh, who uh, is the recipient of a 1986 NEA grant. Uh, She is a poet, she's been published in many uh, magazines, small magazines, and appeared in the anthology Breaking Silence, an anthology of contemporary Asian American poets. She's also the poetry editor of Bridge Asian American Perspective. To my right is James Wiley, who uh, began his professional writing career as a columnist in Mexico City, where he had lots of adventures. Uh, traveled widely in Central and South America. He then came back to the United States and worked as an editor at Esquire and has written a novel on Malcolm X, on uh, black Air Force pilots in World War II, and a trilogy which is set in the... which is called the Brazilian Trilogy set in the Brazilian Amazon. Um, To his right is Anne Nelson, uh, who is a uh, journalist, um, but has um, a consultant to America's Watch, and has just – will have uh, April 23rd, is that the publication date? Has written a book which I had the good fortune to read last week. It's called Murder Under Two Flags – The United States and Puerto Rico and Cerro Maravilla Cover-Up. She has also – Uh, written numerous articles in journals and newspapers uh, and has a book uh, in the works on El Salvador and is a contributor to the Los Angeles Times. Um, To her right is Stephen Koch, Koch, uh, who teaches uh, at Princeton University, Columbia University, and uh, has written uh, many, many uh, fine essays um, and I think your first novel is about to appear... Second. 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 Uh, the Bachelor's Bride, which is a great title, and, and that's also coming out soon, in June. Um, Gregory Kalavakis, an extreme wet, many of you know already, he's the director of NISCA, the New York State Council of the Arts, uh, the Literature Division, and is the chairman of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, which was formed in October 1985. He's also a well-known translator from the Spanish, largely. Did I forget anybody? No. Nope. Uh, the first speaker will be uh, Kimiko Han.
2: There's an anthology of Asian-American poetry entitled, American Born and Foreign. It was published in 1979, and it's uh, really full of a lot of angry poems, not entirely, but a lot of angry poems that then, in the 70s, were kind of an ethnic badge and also even an artistic form. Since that time, Asian-American literature has come to encompass more as the writers have matured so to their politics and aesthetics and an understanding of identity, so also many Japanese and Chinese Americans are entrenched in the middle class. Yet we are still American-born and foreign, and treated as recent immigrants. I've been asked uh, on various occasions for my green card, and also mistaken for refugees. I've also been asked several on several occasions um, if I wasn't from Saigon. Um, There is a parallel between U.S. foreign policy, that is, our national attitudes towards Asians, and the attitudes towards Asian Americans. I believe that same case could be made for Latinos here and there, and blacks north and south. My point being that American intolerance takes the form of chauvinism abroad and white supremacy at home, or you could even reduce it to white supremacy, period. But if white supremacy is a form of American intolerance and a traditional one at that, I don't believe it is a traditional root of intolerance. Certainly white men hold power in this country and are still the creators of mainstream culture, but it is more than ironic that, for example, the Hormel meatpackers are also white males. And how ironic that this female... Eurasian, me, must lay her hope for peace in these men. More particularly, I mean these men struggling against concessions, as well as single mothers and shelters, farmers, so on and so forth, all the way down to American people of color. All these people in all these categories are treated as foreign. For example, there are neighborhoods across the country that look like third world nations, Or you can take the example of free-trade zones in the Bronx that are really little pools of colonies. And also, we could take the example of the 61 row houses in Philadelphia bombed by the police. The people most victimized, it stands to reason, will be or are the ones who will fight hardest for peace, not necessarily out of brotherly or sisterly love. And though I am talking about a class of people, the fight is not for some ideology or even a vision. It is a fight that all these people that is the fight itself that all these people have left. Furthermore, struggling against concessions in the trade union movement is not much different than concessions, if you will, or the take backs in civil rights or women's movement. If the right for legal abortions is abolished, that is a kind of concession. Here is a real majority being politicized. I am also talking about, for another example, a suburban housewife fo- finding out one morning that tap water in her home is polluted and has been poisoning her family for years. She is symbolic to me of a real politicalization as well. But now I've described more the people whom I lay my hope for for peace, then I have identified the traditional roots of intolerance. If there is a political polarization going on in America today, then what is the other side? I mentioned take-backs, by whom? People are paid only as much as they need to maintain themselves, that is, both working people and those on welfare and social security, and they're barely paid as much as they need to live on. Those that are taking the take backs and giving the pay are the ones in power, and I lay, and that is where I lay the root for intolerance. Color and gender discrimination promotes infighting within a class of people, thereby keeping their organizing in check. If I were to see white supremacy as the root, I would be both neglecting to see the struggle of various sections of society and missing the chance to ally myself with them. <coughs> Where does that leave writers for peace, March 3rd, 1986? I don't believe writers as writers, as the intelligentsia, will change society. But I do believe that there can't be qualitative changes in society without writers and artists taking sides. Identifying where the roots of intolerance are, then using every creative way we who work in the cultural sphere can imagine to aid and abet. I believe the greatest gift American writers can give to the world is to promote change here with their vision and voices. And I'm going to take some poetic license and read a poem. It's entitled Seizure, and it was written after a trip I took to Nicaragua. Seizure. In Nicaragua, old women mobilize with sticks and boiling water again. You're North American. You figure it's the season. But back home, the moon acts like that girl who'd been fucked in so many places. She barely knows which hole is for babies. And you know you understand un deber de cantar, a duty to sing. And you know you understand your desire to see Broadway, New York, New York, taken in a flash of July heat. And you know you want it. The green parrots snap guapa, and your thighs sweat like mad, and you want it. Shit, we don't have mountains here. The rooftops will do the trick, you think out loud, because you belong to a process that belongs to you, one you love to touch and nurse and deploy on your lap here, Nicaragua, here, Nueva, New York, here, novio, baby, sister. When I say mujeres, man, of course I mean y hombre también. I'll never forget the shower that riddled the tobacco fields on the Honduran border of Nicaragua where Suyapa, una niña de cuatro años, learned June 9th, 1983, what Somasistas are, yankees, contras. If she didn't know before she was hit by mortar, seizure, you envision as the street after the water has broken. Thank you.
1: Jim, will you be the next uh, speaker? James Wiley.
3: The roots of intolerance in our society don't necessarily begin there. Intolerance presupposes a certain amount of power. The balance of that power shifted to Western civilization about 500 years ago. To understand what is now called intolerance, one must go back to Cortez, who attacked Mexico with 13 pistols and 14 cannon, or to Pizarro, who sent his cavalry charging into the Incas. What was it in the old cultures they destroyed which prompted such hatred? I think it was the presence of eternal man, man identical with himself from the first civilizations in Kush and Mesopotamia, eternal man and his gods who would now have to be replaced by European man with his technology. In these confrontations in Asia, Africa, and South America, we see the making of a hereditary enemy, The disappearance of Mexico and Peru, Ghana, and Kanem Bornu, the subjugation of India, are merely proof of this. But what was the nature of the struggle? Why did the old gods fail? To put it simply, brilliant techniques overwhelmed the soul. And we are having this discussion tonight because it is not yet understood that no progress of the mind can ever answer questions put by the soul. The West has always tried to destroy these questions. Civilizations can be defined by the questions they ask, rather than those they do not. What then is left? How can the hereditary enemy, immensely powerful now, ever be be reconciled with those brown and black peoples who depended on the old gods? The answer lies not in symposia on racism and economics, but in a spiritual rebirth a phenomenon close to a new religion. For centuries, from the Zen to Vesta to the Muslim-defeated Cordoba, the world is dominated by religion. In Western civilization, that is no longer true. That civilization is not founded on a religion or guided by a transcendental ideal. Its value system is confused. There are no shamans, no gods, no star world against which to see man. That civilization has no clear idea of man. The hereditary enemy is bound either to change or disappear. Profound spiritual change is very difficult to predict. No one expected Christianity or Islam, least of all the soothsayers and astrologers. The political system of the West has been weakened by the end of colonialism and Vietnam. The question is one of destiny. The people of the West must not look for a new Moses to give them laws. They must not fight the resurgence of the old gods. Above all, they must find out what they can be.
1: Anne? Anne Nelson? In
4: 1978, I was asked by a magazine that is now defunct, to write about left-wing terrorism in Puerto Rico, and like a good journalist, I went to the New York Public Library to do my research in advance, and I looked up all the newspaper clippings, and they said there was a lot of left-wing terrorism, and then I went down to Puerto Rico and went through the newspaper morgues, and there was a different side of the story that came out there that said there was right-wing terrorism, too. And to my amazement, there had been no mention of this from the Newsweek and the New York Times clippings that I'd found in the New York Public Library. I wasn't very long out of college at that point, and I wasn't very secure in my research methods, but I felt that there was a major discrepancy here between what I saw in New York and, and what I found in San Juan. In other words, there seemed to be two sides to this story, and anyone who looked at it from the point of view of New York saw only one, I feel that when we talk about the issue of peace, it begins very clearly in our own hemisphere. And the United States has long had double standards about the issues of peace and the issues of freedom of expression and civil liberties. We've had one set of standards that are effective for those of us who live in the United States. And yet, when we look south to Central and South America, to the Caribbean, The United States government policy has been that somehow they should live with different standards, that we should support governments that expect different standards to be in practice in those societies. If you look at the history of Puerto Rico, you see that that was true in 1898. The Cubans were fighting a war of independence from Spain, The United States went in supposedly to help the Cubans and ended up taking over Cuba as an outright colony of the United States. They had the Cuban Congress approve a measure under duress that authorized the United States to intervene at any point, which is a strange thing for a Congress to to approve. And in fact, the United States took over Puerto Rico on, on many of the same Bases. They went in and said, this is a war of liberation. However, you will not be liberated from Spain. You will simply be passed from one colonial empire to another, and we're the new guy on the block. So Puerto Rico ended up with the United States, and in many ways it was detrimental to Puerto Ricans' cultural development. The United States applied double standards from day one. Why was that? Well, there were certain cultural prejudices that were involved. The United States was a predominantly Protestant, even a Puritan society. The Puerto Ricans were Catholics, like the rest of the Latin Americans. And at that point, in 1980, 1898, it was a given that Protestants were better. The Catholics were backward. And therefore, this was a re- an industrial society. They were an agrarian society. We were starting to produce... Railroads. They were still shipping sugar. And there was a sense of superiority that was taken there. In Puerto Rico, it was a crude colonialism. For many years, they weren't U.S. citizens. They weren't citizens of any country. They were just Puerto Ricans. And the United States, which used to be a colony itself, which fought a war, to get rid of its own colonial status, imposed a colonial status on other countries, including the Philippines, including Puerto Rico, including Cuba for a while. And it's fascinating to go back and read the documents of the leaders of the United States in this period, because they don't see any contradiction. There is a sense of the US superiority that was natural, which was even God-given. The United States was going to plant its flag on the rest of the world. And it was, it was God's will. Now, since 1898, the status of Puerto Rico has been ameliorated in many economic senses. The suffering is not as grave as it used to be in, in certain terms. And yet that double standard still applies. Just last August, the FBI launched a raid against a bunch of supposed left-wing terrorists. In the act of launching this raid, they battered down the houses, the doors to the houses of some 40 people, went in and had women lying on the ground with submachine guns pointed at them. They confiscated the novel of a young woman who works for a newspaper, a mainstream newspaper as it happens in Puerto Rico, They closed down a magazine altogether and confiscated the printing press, something that that you would not see happen on the mainland United States without considerable protest. And yet it happened to Puerto Ricans, who are incidentally U.S. citizens, but not really. I mean, they do all speak Spanish, don't they? It happened to Puerto Ricans, and, and there really wasn't that much of an uproar. In fact, the FBI carries out a kind of individual policy that's unique to Puerto Rico that they could never get away with in Iowa or South Dakota without everybody in the ACLU jumping all over them. And I don't think that's because Puerto Rico is so far away. It's closer than Alaska. I think it's mostly because of this cultural double standard that's still in effect today. Now, if we look at Puerto Rico and the results there, you see a standard of living that is the poorest in the United States. It's, it's poorer than, than Mississippi, and yet it's higher than the rest of Latin America. It, is, it, it depends on, on which side you approach the island from. And Puerto Rico has been left with a culture of schizophrenia. Puerto Ricans don't really know where they belong in the world. And there are many people in Puerto Rico who will say that that schizophrenia is a great, greater obstacle to their development than the poverty that you find in the rest of Latin America. We don't have to dispute the economic questions here. I think we do have to talk about what the United States does with its double standards and how it affects other people who are trying to think and trying to write and trying to understand their own situations, what kind of mind games that plays with them. If you say some people are more equal than others, you get into an Orwellian tangle of ideas. And in fact, Puerto Ricans still don't enjoy equality under the law But if the United States' policy has created a double standard and a cultural schizophrenia in Puerto Rico, you look at Central America right now, and that schizophrenia is surpassed by an outright form of murder. I don't like to use strong terms, and yet I've been coming in and out of El Salvador since 1980. My first month I was there, I met a newspaper publisher and a newspaper photographer, and a few months later, they were both disemboweled by death squads and then killed afterwards. And shortly after that, we heard that El Salvador was instituting a democracy led by Mr. Duarte, and that the Sandinistas had problems with freedom of expression, but El Salvador did not, because El Salvador was supported by the U.S. government. That's an example of a double standard that I think all of us should think about. If you think about what has happened to freedom of expression in El Salvador, the democracy there has not applied to the university. University people are still being arrested and placed on death squad lists. The newspapers still don't dare to oppose the government in any sense, and yet the administration continues to talk about the improvements of the democratic system in our ally El Salvador. I'm not arguing in favor of one policy or another. I'm just talking about the way that writers and intellectuals in this country have to continue to question the applicability of cultural double standards in the way we look at the rest of the hemisphere. Thank you. Stephen
5: Cope. I should begin by saying that I um, do not represent any particular group on this panel, but only myself. And uh, uh, and in that capacity, uh, I feel that it would be interesting to uh, speak a bit about um, the question of majorities and minorities uh, with respect to the general culture as a writer. And begin, perhaps, by throwing out one or two bromides, um, which I would hope would set a certain tone of skepticism. (laughs) Uh, The first is that every single person on this panel, myself included, is the member of some majority and a member of some minority, including the absolute minority of the race and the absolute minority of the self. Uh, The decision to represent somebody politically, especially insofar as it has to do with the politics of one's identity or caste as a person, is uh, invariably a choice within an anthology of avatars of the self. Uh, And I note that that word, represent, has a dual meaning. That is to say, one as a person may represent a group. But as a writer, as a novelist, for example, I represent people, Uh, represent them artistically. And that choice may appear to be political. I would say it's often more closer to a kind of pseudo-political decision. But nonetheless, I wouldn't deny that. Uh, And that it, but it is made from an array of choices among myself, an array which are of choices that are always available to us. I am always a representative of an absolute majority. I am always a representative of an absolute minority, and a large number in between. That invocation as to say what I'm going to invoke at a given moment is my choice. And it seems to me a matter that is of interest in this discussion in terms of a kind of skepticism with respect to the issue which the Yugoslav um, board has put before us with the notion of the hereditary enemy. Secondly, I must say that I think that it is interesting that in the last 25 years, it is, has been particularly in the United States that there has emerged as a dimension of a leading dimension one might almost say the leading dimension of the cultural politics of our time a notion of a politics based upon choices among these aspects of one's caste identity and i think that i think that it was a an idea that was based, that was originally embarked upon as a result of the successes, such as they were, but important successes of the civil rights movements of the 60s. It's been based to a large degree on a number of views, real and imaginary, of the identity of revolution. And it has produced some extraordinarily heartening and valuable results, kind of new phase in the history of cultural politics as represented by ethnic identity movements, the gay movement, the feminist movement, and that sort of thing, which I think is to be greatly admired. I do think it should also be noticed that it has emanated from the United States in particular uh, and has on the whole been located in the United States and Western Europe. Uh, It has not been a leading force in most of the developing world that I'm aware of. Um, it, that may well or it, I may well be wrong about that but my impression is that the leading argument and the leading polemics with respect to these matters has been from the western democracies I lay that out as another rule I don't know exactly what to say about it but there it is these banalities complete it seems to me that my specific contribution to this discussion is close to exhausted uh, but I do feel obliged and interested in making a comment or two on the theme which is being celebrated worldwide by all the Penn organizations at the suggestion of Yugoslav pen uh, and the idea of, of Writers for Peace Day, which I think should be raised. And I raise with a heavy contentious heart, but still raise, and hope to... Um, get some response. Uh, I should note at first that I should perhaps read a passage from the press release or the the instructions which have been sent out to pen around the world with respect to what the theme of the evening that we're gathered together to celebrate should be uh, for your interest. Symbosia should have as working critical, uh, excuse me, should should have to be as working, critical, and open as possible, as merciful to oneself as a writer as to one's surrounding. He, that is to say, the chairman of the committee in form of promulgating the Writers for Peace Day, suggests that the pen centers organize such debates possibly in two phases. First, within the circle of their own national pen, identifying with brutal frankness all the traditional and apparent modern forms. I don't know what apparent modern forms are. Apparent modern forms of hatred by their own national, social, creedal, racial, ideological surroundings to other nations, classes, beliefs, races, ideologies, etc. Briefly, that they should identify clearly the enemies of their nation's beliefs and ideologies. For the second phase, they should get together with writers from these enemy nations ideologies and so forth, confronting their own knowledge with theirs, their identification of the enemy with theirs, again with all possible frankness. Briefly, they should get together as representative of the enemies and confront the traditional roots of mutual hatred and the actual contrast between the surroundings in which each lives. I should begin by leaving aside too many banalities in one evening really are too many, any discussion so much on the notion of writers for peace as an organization. I feel strongly that the question of the political commitment of a writer and the commitments of a citizen must be considered in separate lights. There are any number of writers who, within the last 50 years, have been outspoken advocates of war a number of major geniuses among them, I don't see any reason to succumb to some sort of radiant sentimentality which is that our profession in some way has given us an inside track on the way to luke's common volupte. I don't think that's true at all. I must add further that I reject with a heavy heart but still reject not so heavy heart actually. The the um, program laid out by this particular committee and its requests, it seems to me preposterous to suggest that the literary community worldwide, worldwide, should engage itself with rooting out a set of national enemies, identifying them, and then in undertaking some sort of supposedly curative dialogue with them. I think that it is uh, uh, questionable to the last degree. I ask you this. Imagine coming up to, let's say, Vladimir Nobokov, or Emily Dickinson, or George Eliot, and saying, Mr. Nobokov, Ms. Dickinson, Ms. Eliot, I've got the thing for you now. Stop thinking about what you're thinking about. Root out national enemies. That's the real task of a writer. I think it seems to me that as soon as one begins to consider individual tasks, individual writers engaged in their own procedures, this becomes an immediately dubious enterprise. I leave that there. I wish to add that I do not for a moment suggest that individual writers, individual thinkers, and certainly individual citizens should be unconcerned with the question. Of course, they can, and in many cases, should be. But the way in which a literary culture, and therefore a national culture, and therefore a world culture proceeds, cannot be prescribed by this kind of argument, which is essentially sententious, and I would suggest part of a dubious agenda in the first place. The next step, since we are on the subject, is to argue that while some writers should be addressing these subjects, the question of the identification of enemies among literary people is a matter which stands before us right now as an organization in pen in a very clear-cut way, in a way which has been somewhat evaded. I would point out that at the time of the International Congress, uh, which has occupied so many of our attention so deeply and so rivetingly, there was a Soviet delegation which had been invited as distinguished guests and which, that is to say, all expenses paid and, and specifically invited through the Writers' Union of the Soviet Union to attend. The question of whether they would attend was held suspended until a brief time before the Congress opened, at which point it was summarily announced by cable that they would not be coming under any circumstances, despite the fact that one of the invited guests, Evtushenko, was making an extensive tour of the United States some three weeks after the end of the Congress. The reason for this as propounded during the Congress by a further telegram or clarification from Georgi Markov, head of the Penn Writers Union, or the of the Soviet Writers Union, read as follows, and I quote from the New York Times account of why the Soviet Union did not have these writers attend. The state approved union of Soviet writers said today it was not attending the Penn Congress because of the presence of emigre Soviet authors and other propagators of hatred. The official press agency TASS, quoted Georgi Markov, the Writers Union chief, as saying that those people would hinder a, quote, creative and constructive discussion at the Congress, unquote. Mr. Markov, a member of the Soviet Communist Party Central Committee, also seemed to suggest that efforts to expand contacts with the United States would exclude authors considered anti Soviet by the Kremlin. Mr. Karkov did not name any writers. But the pen guest list includes Joseph Brodsky, who left the Soviet Union in 1972, Vasily Ascyonov, who left in 1980. Other emigre authors on the guest list are Danilo Kish of Yugoslavia, Czesław Milosz of Poland, Padilla of Her- Herberto Padilla of Cuba, Indyuri Grusha of Czechoslovakia, and Adam Zagachevsky of Poland. I would turn back, after having read this (coughs) Times account, to the second suggestion in the Yugoslavs' release. Second phase they should get together, get together with writers identified as from enemy ideologies, confronting their own knowledge with theirs their identification of the enemy with theirs, again, with all possible frankness. Briefly, they should get together as enemies and confront the traditional roots of mutual hatred. My proposal would be at this point that no more constructive con- con- suggestion could come from this panel than that the we, or the Yugoslavs, or someone, Put this proposal in exactly this language before Mr. Markov, and that the Soviet Writers' Union therefore proceed to arrange such a meeting with what was the phrase? Uh, propagators of hatred. Thank you.
1: Gregory Kalavakos.
6: I'm afraid I won't be able to establish eye contact with all of you for this. Um, A couple introductory notes. Nicolasa Moore, who was supposed to have been here tonight, couldn't be because of a a personal family crisis, actually. Um, And she's a very dear friend of mine. I know she wanted to be here and I wanted to say that. Um, I, I think sincere thanks really should be given to Penn for the inclusion of a gay writer on this panel. That's a first in many ways. Um, I'm in no way representing all gay writers, all writers or translators or lesbians on this panel. Um, I may make an attempt to do so in the next few minutes. Those of you who know me um, know that I don't speak very well spontaneously, and so I'm going to be reading a a short presentation. Sorry for that, Um, but I think it will make following my Baroque thinking process a lot easier. Uh, So what am I doing here? In 1969, half my lifetime ago, Paul Goodman penned a short autobiographical essay entitled The Politics of Being Queer. Ronald Crist reminded me of this forgotten piece when I mentioned the topic of tonight's panel and I owe him a debt of gratitude for bringing it to my attention again. It's a terribly dated essay as are so many artifacts from that era, I'm afraid. But in it, Goodman recounts his mentioning to Stokely Carmichael, how gays are niggers in this society. Disagreeing strongly with Goodman's and Allen Ginsberg's contention, Carmichael responded that gays could always conceal their disposition and pass. Well, I think that's just the point of what I want to say tonight. Since that mythical year of 1969, the year of the Stonewall Rebellion, which is now a bagel store on Christopher Street, that that began the modern-day gay liberation movement, many of us have chosen not to pass, that is, to exist openly in this society. I was between high school and college when Stonewall occurred, the same night, ironically, of Judy Garland's death, past and future intersecting on one hot evening in New York. I was in my first semester of my freshman year at Colgate when Goodman delivered that paper on the politics of being queer. But for my generation and for those younger, the social and political implications of coming out, of emerging from closets, of declaring ourselves were ones we took on with a certain relish with a desire in those chaotic years of the early 1970s to be free of the oppressions that we'd appropriated and had rarely analyzed or understood. You see, for a white middle-class boy growing up in the comfortable suburbs, suddenly or not so suddenly, to understand some of the prejudice and hatred rampant in this country was a tremendous politicizing event. For me in 1970 to read Walter Barnett's Sexual Freedom in the Constitution was to understand that I was illegal in 37 states because of my desire for other men. I was political a priori by definition. I was then on the outside looking in an experience of otherness that many people on this panel tonight have shared in one way or the other. I am definitely not saying that I suddenly understood what it is to be black or Hispanic or Asian in this country. That sort of comprehension would come slowly and partially over the next decade. But my coming out, my ability to appreciate my sexuality, did indeed allow me a certain view of this society where a true minority of those who govern attempt to tell all the rest of us how to live our lives. My being gay made me come in contact with all sorts of people who cut across all ethnic, social, and economic backgrounds. The great leveler, as Goodman and others have called it. And through my contact, physical and political, with them, I began to understand the pervasive racism and sexism and anti-Semitism of this society. I am not, however, saying a large number of things in recounting my trajectory from political naivete to awareness, if that's what we can call it, I am not saying that my experience as a gay man has much at all to do with the lives of a majority of gay men and lesbians in the past decade. Last week I spoke to a group in Queens. I've been speaking almost every night to get support for the passage of the Gay Rights Bill March 20th in the City Council of the city. And I spoke to a group called Gays, Gay Friends and Neighbors in Queens. and I understood once again that Manhattan does not represent New York and certainly has little to do with the rest of the country, and my experience as a white-collar, or tonight as a lavender-collar, white male with a number of academic degrees is in itself the minority experience in the gay male community. Even in the case of, of writers, my experience does not translate. Many have chosen to continue writing in the closet because we surmise their fear of rejection by publishers or readers, Those very men, for example, who partied weekend after weekend in the Pines or in the Hamptons somehow couldn't deal openly with their sexual and affectional needs and drives. They continue to choose to pass. What about a best-selling how-to writer who publishes a gay novel under a pseudonym? What about one of the leading gay writers in this community, afraid to alienate family and friends if he publishes under his real name? Is this not a form of self-defamation an appropriation of the very repression they would have us impose on ourselves. It is, I suggest, in a continuum with those employers who would counsel gay people, not to mention our sexuality in the working place while our colleagues spend hours describing their lives and their loves. Nor am I saying that publishers really wanted to bring out novels and poetry. They felt that such books would, not, would have a negligible market. Only through the building of a marketplace, with the efforts of magazines like Christopher Street and papers like The Native and The Advocate, were publishers able to identify and target a specific audience, in most cases, again, a white male middle class market. Suddenly, Plume Books and St. Martin's Press could bring out a title and be relatively assured that the book would be reviewed for what it was, and reviewed in a publication whose readership hungered for books with gay themes. Of course, a big parenthesis here, alternative publishing continues to be the most committed to gay and lesbian topics, as I think it does for black writers. The gay presses of New York, Firebrand Books, Kitchen Table Press, 13th Moon Magazine, Conditions Magazine, all have been well received within the gay and lesbian communities. But that's just the problem with which I began the harangue, within our communities, within the gay and lesbian communities is great, but with the exception of voyeuristic pieces of prose like Larry Kramer's Faggots, is there a wider readership for gay and lesbian literature, Proust aside? Richard, <laughs> Richard Reeves asks this question far more articulately than I in his book on De Tocqueville in America. Why do we seek out only those publications that reinforce our beliefs and our prejudices? Why do we so seldom pick up a book that is alien to our experience and our culture? whether that book is Latin American, African, Asian, or gay. A straight white reader would not be embarrassed carrying a novel by an African writer on the subway. After all, he or she could not possibly be African. But a gay book that announces its gayness on the cover, forget it. We'd rather clutch our copies of Bright Lights, Big City, a novel that everyone in Manhattan at one time seemed to be reading. Perhaps we can better identify with that yuppie perspective Of a society imbued with the hatred of blacks, women, and gays. Far more acceptable, no? Finally, to attempt to pass to be someone we're not is to be complicit in this society's evil of pointing at the Foucaultian other in order to define itself. We as minorities are equivalent signifiers surrounding a void, a center devoid of self-definition and self-understanding. To pass to pretend to pass is, once again, to be complicit in the repression and prejudice, to choose to be one of them. And is this intolerance not apparent when our government tells gays how to live, or tells the Nicaraguans how to rule themselves, or the Chileans, or the Greeks? Years ago, I was asked if, given the possibility of choice, would I not have chosen to be straight? Would not a heterosexual life have been easier? Easier maybe, but I would choose to be gay in this society today, tomorrow, and next year, despite AIDS, despite fag bashing, despite the horrors of defamation of my people. I doubt very much if I would ever have gone through the politicization I have if it weren't for my homosexuality. I like being on the outside, and I rarely look in to see what I might be missing. Thank you.
1: I will ask the members of the panel if they want to uh, address a question to each other or uh, make uh, some comment on each other's uh, comments. Anyone? Yeah? We like it. <laughs> well, I have a couple of questions. I want to ask, um, Jim, uh, the gist of what you seem to say was sort of a grand theological uh, overview, but um, I'm sure with your knowledge and and, uh, the fact that you wrote a book about Malcolm X, that you probably have, let's say, lesser uh, vision of, let's call it a practical nature. Uh, It's not just the whole problem of Western civilization, is it?
3: Well, fundamentally, it is. (laughs) Uh, Western civilization represents the antithesis of what I call eternal man, which is uh, man from the the old cultures of of, uh, Asia, Africa, South America, and Oceania before the coming of Europe, before about 1500. So Western civilization does represent a great problem ...it still represents a tremendous problem in places like Africa... ...where one is faced with the possibility of assimilation into Western civilization... ...or fundamentally nothing. Fundamentally an inability to go back to what were the old cultures. So Western civilization is extremely important as an antithetical factor... ...in the lives of brown and black peoples, yes. As far as Malcolm X is concerned... He was coming to a realization of this when he died. Malcolm did not know that Islam had been a great world civilization. He had to go to Mecca to find this out, and it was almost accidental and rather shocking. When he came back here, he understood that the peoples of the black peoples in particular, of South America, the Caribbean, Africa, had to be united and there had to be a resurgence of their culture. This is fundamentally what he was talking about in his last days, so that he understood the role of civilization, Western civilization, in undermining these people. And he saw this civilization that he was, that he was brought up in as a sort of hereditary enemy and as something that was basically intolerant of him and people who looked like him. So that... Um, although he started with very modest pretensions toward black separatism and toward Islam, he was forced in the end to come to this point of view, which is something that's happened, it's an odyssey that's been made by a great many black statesmen, by such extremely conservative uh, figures as Mobutu in Zaire, and uh, Leopold Senghor in Senegal, It's something that they've all realized in the end, that culture, their culture, is the ultimate weapon against the civilization that they've been faced with. And uh, it remains that. Western civilization does remain the antithesis of all those people out there from Asia, Africa, South America, and Oceania who are looking for something that's authentic for them, no matter where you start, you, you eventually come to this realization, to this point. So it is important. It's not just a grand theological synthesis or an ethnological parameter. It's something that's extremely tangible to many of the world's peoples and something that really can't be forgotten by the rest of them.
5: Uh, I just want a question. Why 1500? What went
3: wrong there? Uh, 1500, well, 1492 is the year in which everything turns. The Muslims are finally defeated at Cordoba. Columbus sets out for America on the first of the great voyages. A few years later, Vasco da Gama sets out. In, on Christmas Day, 1497, he rounds the Cape of Good Hope and sails into the Indian Ocean and completely destroys the trade between the city-states of, of East Africa and India that have, that, that have been going on for thousands of years. This is the beginning, the Portuguese breakout. A few years later, in 1500, the Portuguese have reached as far as New Guinea and the world has changed.
2: Kimiko. Yeah, I'd like to... Um Speak to some of the things that Stephen brought up um, uh, about representation. Uh, I mean, this panel could look like the next space shuttle, uh, <laughs> but a grouping of astronauts. Were <laughs> <laughs> but we could look like it, right? In terms of representation, um, it's not my it's not my choice to to be representative of of Asian American writers of of Asian Americans, but that's that's what I am, that's how I'm treated. Um, I'm asked still quite often if, if that annoys me, and sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But I mean, that's the environment that, that I live and work in. I think it's, it's a luxury when, when we, that is most minorities, are not treated that way, not treated as being representational. Um, although I think on the other hand it's wrong to try and speak for everybody and certainly I I know I don't speak for all Asian American writers Um, and certainly my my words tonight didn't speak probably to 90% of Asian Americans Um, another point that I wanted to raise is that I think that I think it is important for for writers to speak up for issues of of peace, um, whether it's as a group or as individuals. Um, I don't know. Uh, that I that I'd open up to the floor. I guess um, I'm a new mother, and my mother told me to go out and buy Dr. Spock's book on on child raising and. Even though I didn't want to, I did. <laughs> and on the first page of his introduction, he he says that that all parents should be politically active, and <laughs> and thereafter I enjoyed and read very carefully the rest of his or most sections of his book um, because I I believe that's true too. Uh, so I I believe as writers, as parents, as as whatever we are, I think it's important to um, to be involved politically uh, for peace for whatever that means to, to each of us as individuals I do agree with what Stephen was saying about getting together with the enemy because in my mind the enemy whether you, wanna, whether you want to target Reagan whether you want to go beyond that to target uh, the structure the this, the that whether, no, no matter what you're really targeting I don't think the enemy out there in the United States takes writers seriously, so I don't really feel like getting together with the enemy and sitting down and talking, but I I don't think that means being silent or or not taking ourselves seriously.
5: Uh, two observations. One, I'm thinking of a, of, a, of a very eloquent and beautiful letter written by Orson Welles in um, the height of the McCarthy period um, in which he addressed, I don't remember the exact context, but someone was making an argument on behalf of the apolitical. And it was turning out to be a peculiarly demagogic argument and Orson Welles made an extremely eloquent statement about the way in which the right, the ability, the political possibility of being a political is won by a political struggle and has historically been won in the West, if I may say so, as a result of a political struggle. It is precisely through the loss of that political position that one loses the capacity to be apolitical and is forced, obliged, irresistibly to choose a given subject. Uh, I, as a second codicil, would say that that I fully understand we are ourselves and we are ourselves with the whole anthology of selves and that we are constantly reminded by the world of who we are. Um, But that my only resistance to your position is to say that that there is a danger in letting that become too narrow a political agenda. I realize that what I'm saying is self-protective because too narrow is what I'm defining. What someone else is defining, <laughs> of course, we don't want it to be too narrow. We just think a little less narrow. Um, but uh, uh, I think that one can you can speak as a mother as clearly as you can as. You know, which includes a very substantial uh, minority of the world,
6: and a majority of, of the children <laughs> have dealt with them. So, there we go. but my exhaustion then comes from that kind of misused prose that you have in that statement, which unfortunately I didn't see. Um, tossing money around here, no. um, uh, I don't know. Finally, what that means to sit down with the enemy. Um, other than you and I can name 10 people who might be opposed to us politically. It's that kind of of doublespeak that I think Anne pointed out where we, we suddenly certify El Salvador for great strides in human rights. I was here an evening a year ago where an Uruguayan writer had been kept in prison for an additional year because our Secretary of State, at that time Alexander Haig, had suddenly certified that Uruguay was making great strides in human rights when it was totally untrue. And suddenly the government there thought, well, we don't need to release these writers because the U.S. isn't looking at us. It's that same kind of misuse of the English language, let's get it back to writing, that the, the president can say after Rock Hudson's death we are committing massive amounts of money, $100 million to AIDS research research, so far, $3 million has been released of that. That doesn't make the newspapers. It, it leaves me, as, as a gay man with many friends dead and dying at this very moment, horrified that we can, ta- we can commit $20 million to seven Tylenol deaths in Illinois in 1983 or 84. It took 1,000 deaths in this country from AIDS for the government to come up with $20 million does that not mean that gay lives and IV user lives are worth less in the government's eyes than, than other lives? It's, there shouldn't be allowed to get away with this kind of, of language and they should be people and it isn't happening with the nation, it isn't happening with the with Harper's. There is not anyone going after them in their own terms and pointing out the hypocrisy of their language. know.
5: Um, yeah. I'd just like to say, why not writers?
1: Oh, you said, absolutely. why writers? I say, why not writers? There's a
5: reason. I would say that there, there is a reason, writers. Um, uh, which doesn't... I don't mean to turn your question around. What I'm saying is that most literature, most of the greatest literature, and as well as a great deal of very good literature, of the richest and most powerful literature, does not address these questions. And, 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 and has continuously not, or has done so in ways which would be quite unwelcome to the political agendas implicit in the positions taken. So that's point one. Point two, writers can address these subjects by virtue of the fact that they're in the business of addressing people. That's the way they make their livings. Therefore, there is excellent reason for them to undertake a propagandistic effort. Uh, there's no reason to apologize for a propagandistic effort, and the distinction between propagand- the propagandistic effort and the workings of art is admittedly very shadowy indeed. Perhaps it is not categorical. Perhaps there's no real distinction at all. But, um, but nonetheless, I find something highly dubious, in the promotion of the idea that the profession, at such people who earn their living through the use of language, are under a moral obligation to adopt a political agenda,
3: well, I just reject
5: the idea. Yeah. I think that as writers, of course, they can address is, it. Is Politicians the issue of would peace, be better. A political issue? Let's say this: the making of war is a political issue. The making of war is generally decided by a group of people with a political agenda. Rarely writers. Um,
1: well, writers in collusion at times.
5: Writers in collusion, indeed. Absolutely. Uh, but very often, writers in collusion with the very highest possible aspirations and and wishes for peace. I mean...
4: Well, yeah, you you talk about a moral obligation and whether writers have it or not. I I would say that it's also a matter of professional self-interest. Writers write. To write, you need to publish. And we see societies all over the place who have silenced writers. Maybe they put them in jail. Maybe they extinguish their publications. And you cite the cases of the Soviet Union and, and the writers' union there... As some kind of argument that we shouldn't worry about freedom of expression in other places, and I don't see. Where does see... Say that have? Well, no, no. Well, what does that have to do with the subject? I mean, what the Soviet Union does is a matter of, of their society. What we're talking about is our society and how our culture functions in regarding the freedom of expression, where mm-hmm. we have some kind of input, where we have some kind of control.
5: Yeah. Um... To work backward in that, the United States is a country to to which a large number of uh, dissidents and exiles have come for political refuge and for freedom of expression. And as such, many of them have become American citizens, and a substantial numbers are members of the organization whose executive offices we now sit in. Therefore, it seems to me to be not a matter of irrelevance to Americans to address the question.
4: to play devil's advocate there we have the McCarran-Walter Act which blocks writers which blocks intellectuals and people with ideas from addressing our society on sheerly ideological grounds
5: that's true and so it should be appealed but I don't see that the essential nature of my argument is changed by that argument so what (laughs) so what from the point of view of the question of of, of see what I mean to say is that it seems to me a dubious agenda once, however, the agenda is formulated in the terms that I read out to you, quoting from the from the statement of the of the Yugoslav um, unit, it seems to me that one is looking forthrightly at immediate, obvious example of writers not getting together to talk about ideological enmity, and they're not getting together by reason of an explicit political decision announced to the directors of this organization within the last six weeks I don't see that that's some sort of a big uh, proposal it's perfectly obvious a large six or eight writers were forbidden to leave their country because there was some danger that they would sit in the same room with a group of ideologically proscribed literary people that's
1: True, that's all true. But I think what, what uh, the la- and the language of the Yugoslav statement was malabil, to say the least. But the issue that Anne is getting toward, and I'll bring it right home to roost, right at Penn, uh, particularly in the Puerto Rican issue, where the United States uh, performed an action in Puerto Rico Whose people are American citizens that they could never have done in the in the mainland in the north, uh, where Penn itself has been slow to see the implications, has uh, hung fire, to use Henry James's expression, because they wish they wish the Puerto Rican writer, who is an issue to produce evidence that she was indeed writing a novel that the FBI seized when they bashed in her door and destroyed her apartment. Now, I doubt that Penn writers on the whole would ever tolerate that their Central Park West apartment would be would be smashed up by the FBI and that they would have to prove that they were bona fide writers in order for Penn to defend them. And this is an issue. There is someone in this room who, who uh, knows even more than I do about that, That's Mary Morris, I saw her back there. She, has a, she had a letter from the writer in question in which she thanked us very much for our initial concern, but thanks a lot. She didn't wish us anymore to act on her behalf. Uh, and uh, I sympathize with her completely. Now that attitude is the attitude that uh, those people down there are small and brownish and the Yankees have always regarded them as less than uh, artistically important or culturally important. It was very easy for us to slide out of continuing that battle for that woman.
5: Um, should I answer? Right, there's uh, no, if there's you have, no answer. If you want to. I, 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 I cannot comment on the Puerto Rican situation except to say that I know Mary Morris. I don't see her. I wish I did. I always thought a I saw her. For the eyes. Somewhere. But is uh, Mary, Mary
1: here?
5: Okay, um, I heard about that, that at an early stage, and read the press reports. And I, apart from that, know nothing and will not say anything except the fact that it sounds but absolutely we ought, grotesque. We
1: ought to find out about. Oh, it. Oh, I
5: agree. It's I not
1: agree. right for us to sit here uh, and say, "Well, we don't know much about
5: I it." I quite agree. I think that the danger of what is of the of the byplay that is now going on between Dory and myself, and which I really would like to opt out of rapidly, <laughs> uh, is the danger of making this kind of argument, formulating it within the context of what good Jesuitical kids are told is the weakest of all arguments. To Quoque, you too. That is... Well,
1: that's what you did with the Soviet Union. No, no,
5: no. I was sorry. I did not. I would insist I did not.
1: You asked it, but did we ask you about the lynching in the South?
5: No, <laughs> no. I insist that I did not. That is to say, it doesn't seem to me that the position I have taken with respect to Penn's relationship to the Soviet Writers' Union and to what seems to me the very questionable political agenda embodied in the Yugoslav Statement in any way suggests complicity on the part of Penn or anybody else, certainly myself, with the outrages you're talking about. One can talk about them both. One can't talk about them both at the same time, but one can talk about them both. Um, I think that insofar as the Tu Quo argument, which is the characteristic intellectual vice of Cold War argumentation, Uh, uh, obscures is the necessity to get certain principles clear and stand by them and not finesse them. I raise this issue because it seemed to me so evidently raised by by the worldwide event which we're here to celebrate and by a near political event we're confronting. I would not for a moment wish to absent myself from the Puerto Rican argument except to say that I don't know anything more than the small amount I've just told you I know.
1: I I think that if no one else here has anything to address to each other, we'll now open it to the floor. Uh, Please address your questions to me. And uh, I see a question right there. Would you identify yourself, please, and and, uh, state your question clearly so everyone can hear?
7: I am Daniela Giuseffi, one of the very few Italian uh, female names to receive any notice at all in the entire history of American literature. So I feel a bit like an outsider. There are really very, very few of us. Stop and think. You won't think of many Italian female names. But I think what I really want to ask about here, and, and let me just step aside a moment to say that... Uh, uh, it's very painful the way the mafia image always comes into mind whenever an Italian name is heard. In the American mind, this tends to happen with Pritzi's honor coming out of Hollywood, even in this day and age where all the criminals are either Italians, Poles, Hispanics, Blacks, Jews, and so forth. So this leads me uh, to what my question is, and that is this idea of divide and conquer. And we all know the words, since we're wordsmiths here, we all know the horrible words in the American vocabulary. For example, guinea, wop, dago, spick, chink, nigger, polack, ruski, uh, kike, uh, dyke, fag, all these hateful words that I think are the real roots of the mushroom clouds. And I wanna pose this question uh, the idea that Freud said there always has to be a we and a they for there to be love in the world, but unfortunately that's what also creates hate. And I wonder if it isn't time to begin thinking of the we as all the people of the world and the they as the militarists, the military industrial uh, People, uh, Grumman, Hughes, Bechtel, Honeywell, Union Carbide, Ran, General Electric. Neruda wasn't afraid to name the United Fruit Company right out in his poems. I, I never found any division between art and uh, literature and politics in Neruda or Akhmatova or Walt Whitman, or any of the great writers of the world. And perhaps it's our job as writers to start helping the people of the world empathize with each other in a way that we can all begin to think of ourselves as the we and the military industrialists of of the USSR, of the US as the they that's about to annihilate us all and uh, to to make that our theme is terribly important there is that deadly connection between a nuclear war and what's going on in El Salvador, we're about to become a nuclear flashpoint here in New York for the Iowa which has been off the coast of Central America, threatening small third world nations with nuclear annihilation so there's a, there's a lot that goes on here in this we and this they that I think is the responsibility of writers, how would, how would you feel about that?
1: Anyone want to respond to that?
7: Well, I just want to say that I particularly identified with what the women on the panel said and also Mr. Riley's idea. Well, really, everyone who, who spoke in a non-abstracted way uh, that had a human thing to say, and that's what, that's what it excited me. And I... I just want to say thank you for letting me ask my question, and I would like to invite all writers to be part of the Writers and Publishers Alliance for Nuclear Disarmament, where I serve on the board. We have uh, Mr. Rosen here tonight, who's also with us, but I just want you to know that the Writers and Publishers Alliance for Nuclear Disarmament exists, and we welcome all writers, publishers, editors into our ranks, and please... Talk to me about it if you'd like to. Thank you. Thank you.
5: May I just make one comment, which is that I would like to affiliate myself very strongly with your observation about the, the okayness in this culture um, to abuse uh, Italian Americans. I think it's a real reigning scandal. Uh, one of the things that I rather welcome in, in Cuomo's recent procedures is having made it a political issue. And I think that's a very welcome thing to say.
7: Thank you for saying so. Most Americans don't know that Frances Winmore was forced by her publishers to change her name from Vincy Guerra in order to publish her novels, And most of us have never heard of perhaps Grazia Del Ledo who won the Nobel Prize in mm. A literature. great, great writer. In 26, I'm glad you know who she is. These people do. She hasn't even been reclaimed by American feminists. So thank you.
1: But she was published in English.
7: Yes, a little bit. She has become... No,
1: no, published in the 30s in English. Oh, I see, yeah. I see. Mm. She
7: had 28
6: novels,
1: so I
8: think maybe one or two. Okay. Yeah. About six of them, I think. Yes, Hanan. I think you can hear me without the microphone. No, I'm sorry. Just take it. Hi. Please identify yourself. Okay, my name is Hanan Reznikov and uh, I'd like to say that There seems to me a lot that's remained obscure in in what's been said thus far this evening in terms of the complex relationship of cultural and economic intolerance. Uh, For all of us who have had at least a look at history, and I think that includes just about everybody here, I hope, it seems apparent that the cultural roots of intolerance go very far back, and that at the same time, so do the economic roots of intolerance. However, it seems to me that the economic roots of intolerance as we can see in any individual case that we examine that uh, any economic situation in, within the context of the uh, western and for that matter uh, state capitalist or eastern mode of economic organization requires the existence uh, of an underclass of some sort and that this underclass is usually identified through the means of uh, adapting the the prevailing culture, the, the prevailing cultural attitudes, let's say, in terms of whatever uh, groups that are present within the society are most liable or likely to fit the category of the underclass. That is, uh, the French historian Brodel points out that slavery had all but disappeared from the West, from Western Europe at the time that the new world was colonized and was reinvented and reintroduced because economic conditions made it necessary from a capitalist point of view. Uh, By the same token, we can see any number of examples today from Northern Ireland to any place else, including in this country, where the kinks in the economic system require that uh, various uh, large numbers of people do the most menial work, or be unemployed, or be the poor people in that society. And obviously, it works very neatly that such people be the people who conform to the society's image of uh, those who don't deserve the uh, same treatment as those who are the privileged. Therefore, among a group of people here who are culturally oriented, uh, among writers whose contribution has to be primarily uh, cultural rather than economic, What is the possibility of our using our skills and our uh, desires and our passions for justice as people working within the culture, as writers? uh, What use is it since opinion seems to be as liquid as water and changeable as the economic conditions dictate? How can we approach making any significant dent in the pattern of intolerance that has developed over (coughs) centuries, if not millennia, Uh, within the context of the economic structure as it is or is there any more complex relationship between this uh, this cultural work and some sort of approach to an economic restructuring of some kind? Is it possible for writers to address that question? Are there writers among us who do address that question? Do any of you have an opinion?
4: Nobody has an opinion. And Nelson, I'm, I'm very interested in this because, you know, from the history I've studied, I've noticed that this underclass continually shifts. And if you go back a hundred years, all of us probably had relatives who were in one underclass or another. You can talk about Irish or Eastern European Jews. We were dumb Swedes, you know. I mean, everybody has it. And. As you go into the 20th century, uh, it's gradually shifted into the Hispanics and very largely the Puerto Ricans. Although they're kind of being displaced right now, at least in this area, by the Dominicans. They're they're the new lowest rung. And they're kind of unwillingly pushing the Puerto Ricans up a millimeter. And. It's been very interesting to me to have the experience of writing a book about Puerto Rico. I was asked to write a book about El Salvador first, and I said for my own reasons I'd like to write about Puerto Rico first. And now we're having the experience of having bookstore owners saying, who wants to read about Puerto Rico? Which confuses me because we live among Puerto Ricans, there are a million of them in the New York area alone. I would think that familiarity would breed curiosity, but it doesn't, it, it breeds contempt. and I don't have any answers on this. I just have more questions. And to my, from the way I look at it, in the 1930s and in the 1960s, it was fashionable to write about the underclass. Right now, it's fashionable to write about yuppies who have cocaine and you know, you take cocaine and, and go to downtown clubs and so on. Maybe it's a 30-year cycle and we'll all be better shape in the 90s. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but you talk to publishers, you talk to agents, you talk to writers, and the underclass is not in this year. You know, you you try to get contracts to go down to the South to try to talk about the Harvard study on hunger, this and that, and it just is not hot. And unfortunately, and I think it's very unfortunate that all of us as writers are governed by an industry that tries to direct us towards what is hot in the culture, what will get reviewed, what will get attention. And unfortunately what they look at first is not the quality of the writing or the quality of the research. I think that the only semblance of an answer I can offer is that you keep pounding at the door. You keep bringing the ideas and the proposals and the research, and eventually you hope that, that the pendulum will swing back.
6: But to give another overlay of, of banality, since some of us are repeating a, a few banal comments tonight... It gets us into the question, too, of illiteracy. I mean, this administration certainly has withdrawn major support from literacy programs. Publishers Weekly this week has a very good piece on how all library literacy programs are going to be defunded in the next budget. And you're talking about how do you reach, how do you reach the public that can begin to affect a change? I still believe in political action. I still believe very much in, in the kind of political Talking and discussion that I've been doing in the outer boroughs in the past two months. I don't, I'm very pessimistic, finally, if you're talking about a growing illiterate population where the ideas, smartly, according to the ruling minority, cannot reach those people who are most affected and most subjugated, and I see no way out of that.
1: gentleman in
9: the back there Yeah, I just want to say it was kind of hard tonight listening to all the different things going on it was kind of like listening to six different discussions Um, but uh, one thing that did come across to me is that I mean, uh, when the person before raised the issue of um, we and them as being uh, us and the militarists and other people on the panel were raising different points of view about us as this group or, or and they are, or, or in the document itself referring to the enemy. Um, You know, I hate to quote comic strips, but Pogo was right. Uh, You know, we have met the enemy and he is us. Um, It's very nice to stand on the outside and say, I am different. I am a noble minority or a noble majority working against the oppressors. But um, we are the oppressors, all of us. We're We're living in a democracy, in quotes anyway, and so each of us is is responsible um, you know none of us can change the world um, but we all do our, our little part and we all are part of why things are the way they are and I just think it seemed a little easy to me tonight with a lot of people kind of um, stepping aside and saying in effect the enemy's over there the good guys right here.
2: Yes, Uh, some poet friends of mine went to the women's conference in Nairobi and one thing that they really learned there was uh, they sort of brought an agenda (laughs) for the women of third world countries um, these friends of mine being third world women quote unquote uh, from the United States and what the women said to them was listen we know what we're going to do you go home and take care of your issues because we're going to take of we're going to take care of ours no matter what you in the United States do anyway so you go home and take care of what you have to do and make changes in your country which is really the point of what I had to say tonight so i agree with you the enemy is us and we do have to take care of things here and that is the greatest gift we can give the rest of the world
10: Yes. Judith. My name is Judith Molina, and I would like to suggest that among the list of the uh, ugly words that we were discussing, that we add to these ugly words the word enemy. I think it is intrinsically an immoral concept uh, for a peacemaker, or a writer who wants to make peace, or a person who wants to make peace to consider the possibility of having an enemy. Now, clearly, obviously, there are people that do these terrible things, and there are the monsters, and the murderers, and the exploiters, and the fascists, and the killers, and how are we going to approach them without sinking to their level of being enemy? This is, seems to me to be particularly the, the political agenda of the writer. Uh, I don't agree that a writer cannot have a political agenda. I think when a writer stirs up fear and anger and hatred, they're doing a a questionable political act. I think when a writer uh, uh, presents their view of the world in such a way as to stir some kind of hopefulness, uh, some kind of sense of empowerment uh, of the individual to, to make those changes in the world, the possibility of our coming together—that uh, is, when the writer, when the writer increases or diminishes uh, the fear or the hatred or the hopefulness—I think this is a particularly political act, and I don't think that any writer has ever avoided that political act. Uh, uh, Jackson McLeod, uh once said to Julian Beck that every time, uh, he, uh, 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 Julian asked him, asked Jackson if he ever drew a picture of anything. And Jackson said, uh, Jackson Pollock said, every time that I draw a stroke on the canvas, I am drawing a picture of something. And I think that every time that a writer uh, presents a view of the world, a picture of a society, a, uh, their own state of being, they are working in the one direction or in the other and I don't think it's that it's it's the direction of uh, an I a a we and a they I think we have to replace the whole concept of we and they with a concept of I and thou and then realize that there's some terrible horrors in the world but increasing the sense of enmity doesn't seem to be peacemaking Mm -hmm.
7: By saying we and they, what I meant was just what Ms. Molina has just said, the we being all the peoples of the world, including those who work in the military-industrial complex, and that being the enemy, that organization of profiteering for death, that is the enemy, that concept. But the we is all people, and so I just wanted to clear that up that I agree with what the others have said.
1: more questions from the floor or statements? Yes. Sir.
11: Of course what I have my name is Howard Meyer. I have been a practicing attorney for 45 years and a writer for the last 15 of them. I retired as an attorney and I practice only as a writer now. And it's because I'm an attorney that I'm particularly sensitive to one aspect of the problem or the subject that we're dealing with. This is not a question, this is a comment. The comment is on the implication, the suggestion, the insinuation that writers as such, as a group, do not have a special responsibility as a corporate entity to deal with this problem of peace and the very much related, interrelated questions of intolerance and injustice. The answer, or an answer, which is as compelling as a single answer can be. There are always more than one answers and people will rhetorically use the device saying the answer. But the principal answer that appeals to me is the phrase, which maybe sounds like a cliche, But it's an important phrase to carry away from the meeting tonight, the phrase double standard, which another one of the participants in the panel used today. And it's as an attorney, as one who knows the law of our country and something about international law that I want to ask you as writers to think who is better qualified and therefore being better qualified who is more greatly obligated to combat the use of the double standard, which is, after all, a torture of words, of logic, of semantics, to bring about the results of injustice and illegality. And the illegality that I'm concerned with, and I see this I'm in the peace movement in various ways. In the Upper West Side, we have a little grassroots group called the Committee for Non-Intervention in Central America, and I participate in other activities. And what concerns me among my brethren and sisters in, in that movement is their own lack of concern with legality, because the most atrocious, from a lawyer's point of view, aspect of the double standard is that those who rode to power and are manipulating power on the basis of the phrases law and order are the ones who are now conducting international illegality and disorder. And I'm talking about the Treaty of the Organization of American States, not merely the uh, charter of the United Nations, which after all people can double-talk their way around the Charter of the United Nations. But the organization of the American states, Latin America, the United States, and Canada, have a treaty among them which provides that no state, directly or indirectly, shall intervene or affect or attempt to affect the personality of any other state. And this is one of the bases, the principal single basis, of Nicaragua's complaint against the United States at the World Court. And when that was presented to the World Court and the United States was called upon to respond, its first response was to litigate, to have the judges pass on the question that was presented by the United States, you have no jurisdiction. And the court ruled against the United States on that and then On the day before his second inauguration, Mr. Reagan directed his State Department and his State Department obliged by withdrawing from the World Court. And what bothers me every day and has bothered me every day since is how little concerned our teachers, our writers, our doctors, our bricklayers, our dentists, and our writers have been concerned with this illegality being perpetrated by their country. I ask you as writers, how many of you have thought today what might happen tomorrow when the world Court hands down a verdict on Nicaragua's complaint against the United States? What will you do about it? How will you respond to it? How are you prepared to deal with the torrent of words that will emanate from Washington to justify their course? This question of double standard in law and order is something that should be carried out of this meeting to whatever organization you belong to. I'm trying to conduct a fight within the American Bar Association, which has set forth a great goal, world peace through law. They talk about that, but I haven't seen a word about the World Court and the American Bar Association Journal in the 12 months that have passed since we copped out. Mr. Goetz, who many of you will agree to condemn, at least came back from Vermont to face a court. The United States is not facing a court.
1: (laughs) Are there any uh, further comments, questions? For Yes, sir.
12: Uh, my name is William Marsh. Um, while I was listening to the initial discussion by the panel, I, I was you know, digesting it in terms of my own experience. And I think that uh, life is full of ironies, and they are often specific to whom you are and where you are at the time. So I, I thought I would set forth a couple of experiences that I've had. And um, I was a college student in the late 60s, Um, participated in the war movement, anti-war movement rather, and decided to go to Japan because it was possible through my college's curriculum to do so. And I thought rather than read body counts about the wars in Asia and so on, it might do me some good to observe an Asian culture up close. And consequently I ended up spending some five years in Japan And I found that here's a country that um, believed ultimately that if you were not racially Japanese, you could not understand their language. Um, And I think this is is a situation that's being mitigated, but it's interesting to contrast uh, the differences in cultures, vis-a-vis these kinds of experiences, on the other hand, the Japanese read more about what we do in their newspapers. Uh, I mean, the, the average Japanese newspaper, if you pick it up, the first 10 pages are international news. This is true in New York, but it's not true in the rest of the United States. Um, when I first arrived in Japan, um, I was on my own. Uh, I had some, some college classmates who went with me. One of them was gay. and he had an incredibly rapid introduction to a number of very interesting people in Japan because he basically uh, established his presence on the local gay scene and he was talking with Yukio Mishima six weeks after we arrived. So that is, you know, I mean there are, there are bad aspects of, of what happens but then there are compensations. This is... I'm just talking about ironies here. Um, It's the
6: old boy network, yes. Right.
12: Uh, Similarly, when I came back to the United States and I was fluent in Japanese and had a, you know, a sort of hands-on feeling about daily life in Japan and met Japanese-American friends, I made them incredibly uncomfortable by, you know, speaking Japanese. I would hear from them that Uh, one of the things they really hated when they were growing up was being sent to Saturday school where they had to study Japanese because their parents wanted them to cling to Japanese culture and all they wanted to be was an American and similarly when I was in Japan um, every Japanese virtually that I encountered assumed that I could not speak Japanese so they spoke very frankly about their reactions to me and some of them (laughs) were things that you would not want to hear. Um, And I'm not... uh, I I think that one, that life is immensely complicated and all you can do as a writer when you are writing is try to be honest to what you have seen and set down exactly what it is. Uh, This is not... I'm not arguing against Political action or anything else, but I think we must, when we are talking about ideologies, keep our eyes and ears open to the, the real texture of life. That's all I have to say.
13: Thanks. Hello, my name is uh, Russell Pollack. I'd just like to basically ask a question. During the panel's discussion, they had talked about you know, Western civilization's impact on other civilizations and how that dominant culture, in a sense, has adversely affected the other cultures that came into contact. And gentlemen in, in my row, also brought into a point some economic questions on how the economics have impacted on cultures. One of the things that we seem to be seeing more and more in America today is that what had been part of the majority culture Farmers, industrial workers, the working middle class is now being in a sense destroyed by its own culture and system and i'd like to know what you know the comments of the panels would be to that is you know the people who were the majority are now being in a sense absorbed or destroyed by what had been their majority culture. that seems somewhat ironic, and i don 't know if it's, if it is historically unique, but it may be i 'd like to have any comments i'd like
1: to uh tell you a comment if, uh, a friend of mine who's a journalist who just did a swing in the Midwest talking to the farmers and he said they said it's because the Jews own the banks which is not very amusing huh? if I could just make one final comment and the gentleman in the middle about you know the critical
13: year of 1492 1492 also saw the expulsion of the Jews
3: yes I know I'm aware yes. of that right. thank you
13: Sorry.
5: <laughs> I would only have one thing to add to this, to, to what fine. you just said, yeah. which is it seems to me that this the peculiarity you mentioned about the fact that there are groups of people in the United States that are under heavy financial pressure, as there are groups of people in the world under heavy financial pressure Let's worldwide and in every country... And our feigning surprise at this discovery, or being perplexed about it, seems to me to be perhaps a consequence of the peculiar fact, which I only noted in passing, that the characteristic vocabulary of the left in the last 30 years has been increasingly diffracted into discussions of caste. That is to say, the characteristic discussion of what is wrong with society and how we must protest our position in it has been increasingly, and I would say based on the thrilling model of the civil rights movement, increasingly been about finding what in our own identity most looks like caste, the better to A, protest it, and B, establish our particular social righteousness as a consequence of it. And this has had some dubious effects in cultural politics, but it's also had some extraordinarily valuable ones. One of the dubious effects in cultural politics, it seems to me, is blinding us to the simple fact that we're all in the same boat. And that to pretend to be surprised that Methodist farmers in Iowa can be put in a financial squeeze as a result of misguided financial policies. And how can that happen? They don't belong to any group. Seems to me to be one of the peculiar effects of this particular episode in cultural history.
3: I'd just like to say that it's not uncommon for people in, in other cultures to be devoured by those cultures. This happened in Africa during the period, during the very early period of the slave trade, because in certain African societies, slavery slavery was condoned. And uh, because it got out of hand, because it became developed in in commerce with white people, it destroyed the notables and the priests and the shamans and the ordinary people of Africa, the people who had had done well in their own culture through its uh, expansion. It's not unusual for, uh, for the best aspects of a culture to, to destroy those people who had, taken, who, who had taken the most from it. And this was a rap- very rapid process in Africa. The slave trade, which had gone on in Africa for centuries before the Europeans eventually destroyed the Africans themselves.
2: Mm. It was on, I think, one of the recent news programs that are more and more like talk shows or, or uh, whatever, <laughs> news magazines. Uh, they had a list of... of they, took a to- they took a poll of, of women's um, heroes in the United States. And, you know, they were the usual uh, movie stars. Um, so I was thinking, well, who would my hero be? <laughs> what American male would be my hero? and I'm going to open this up to not just writers but people in general uh, men in general and I I came up with Bruce Springsteen and it wasn't just for his, jag- his uh, great uh, record jacket cover <laughs> but because really I think he does speak to um, those groups of people that you just mentioned um, the workers and the farmers who are really under attack and uh, in terms of popular culture I think he's not only does he speak to them, but he is a political activist. He he does uh, act on on what uh, he also sings about, and not just monetarily, but he goes and demonstrates. and, and I think that's I, that to me is is a a living hero. <laughs>
7: Grace
2: well, this were male.
7: Here, here. We all, <laughs> <work there. laughs> all right well we thank you very much thank
10: you. Thank you. Splitting. <laughs> I'm splitting thanks for